0: we're going to continue in John 14, and if you have a Bible, you can open to that wonderful passage of Scripture. There's an outline attached to your bulletin. If you didn't get one and want to get up and grab one, feel free. There are also printed messages at both exits, and you can grab one of those now or later if you'd like, and all of those are on the church uh, website as well. John chapter 14, I'm going to cover a bigger chunk this morning than I normally do, but it kind of all fits together, um, verses 1 through 11. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one comes to the father, but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, Philip? And you have not or yet. You have not come to know me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, otherwise believe because of the works themselves. According to uh, USA Today, more than 20%, it's one out of five American adults, took at least one drug for conditions like anxiety and depression in the year 2010, including more than one in four women, so more women than men are taking those medications. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America reports anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults in the United States age 18 and older, which represents 18% of the US adult population. I realize that some of you have taken or perhaps even currently are taking such medications for anxiety or depression. And uh, I am not a medical doctor and I am quick to recognize there are many complex factors, physiological sometimes, that affect our mental condition. And I am not recommending that you go off any medication without first getting a doctor's consent. But at the same time, I'm going to suggest something radical here. And that is that you think carefully about whether or not you have truly laid hold of what Jesus promises here. He promises a cure for troubled hearts. And that cure is this. Faith in Christ's person and hope in Christ's promise will comfort your troubled heart. Now, I know some of you are immediately thinking, well, that's overly simplistic. I mean, come on. You know, that that's a nice thought, but it's impractical. And it's totally out of touch with reality. But before you go there, let me remind you, these are not my words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to troubled hearts. And either Jesus' words are true or they're not true. And so I would ask you to consider whether perhaps... You haven't wrestled enough to apply Jesus' words when your heart is troubled before you conclude that they're overly simplistic or that they're impractical. And I also would point out that Jesus' words have given genuine comfort to millions of believers who have gone through horrific trials in the last 2,000 years of church history, torture and martyrdom, and all manner of uh, trials, losing children, and so on. And so I urge you just to think about these words and pray, God, help me to really lay hold of the truth here and to apply Jesus' words to my troubled heart when We are troubled. Now, if anybody here isn't troubled this morning, I guarantee you will be. (laughs) Uh, It is common to the human condition. So maybe you're in a lull right now, praise the Lord, but waters get rough again. And we all go through times of anxiety, times of trouble. I think that's one reason God gave us the Psalms. And so that's why I always encourage you, read a Psalm every day. Psalms are wonderful, and the psalmist is up, the psalmist is down, the psalmist is all over the charts, but in the end, the psalmist lays hold of solid hope in God. Now, where we're at, Jesus is in the upper room. He's with the 11 disciples. Judas has just left the room to betray him, but except for John and maybe Peter, if he picked up the signals from John, None of the other disciples have a clue as to who the betrayer will be. Jesus just said, one of you is going to betray me. And John whispered to him and found out who. I think he was in shock. Uh, The Lord has also announced, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you, and you guys can't follow me. Now, these are men who have left their jobs. They have left their families in some cases, To follow Jesus in the hopes he is the promised Messiah of Israel. Uh, Just a few days before, they were ecstatic as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the the colt, the foal of a donkey. And the crowds were cheering, Hosanna, and boy, everything looked great. But now, just a few days later, Jesus is talking more about his death than about his messianic kingdom. And then to top it off, he's just told Peter that before daybreak, he is going to deny Jesus three times. This is Peter, the leader of the 12. Peter, who is bold, but he's going to fail. And so you're, you're talking about troubled men here. Their brains were trying to process all of this. Their feelings were all over the charts in this. And uh, they're anxious. They're troubled men. And so in John 14, not just in our text, but the whole chapter is all about comfort. Comfort for troubled souls, comfort for troubled hearts, and we'll see that as we work through this wonderful chapter here. But I believe that if you apply these words, they will give comfort in your troubles as well. The first thing then is that faith, In Christ's person will comfort your troubled heart. Now, as you know, faith is only as good as its object. You can have all the faith in the world in a faulty airplane, and your faith won't make that airplane fly. That plane has to be sound. And then it just takes a little bit of faith to get on board, and that thing will take off and get you where you're going. Well, the point is, Jesus is deserving of your faith. And I've repeatedly emphasized, not just in John, but in other messages, that the crucial question that we all need to answer is the one Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, 15, who do you say that I am? That is the crux. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and and who all Scripture proclaims him to be, then he is absolutely trustworthy in any and every situation that you and I find ourselves in. On the other hand, if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then the Apostle Paul is very blunt on that. He says, then eat, drink, eat and drink because tomorrow you die. In other words, just enjoy life while you can. Uh, You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe tomorrow is the end of your life. But if Christ is risen, Paul says there, that's all in 1 Corinthians 15, then everything else follows. I just read a great quote by the late historian, church historian, Yaroslav Pelikan. Just before he died, he said this, If Christ is raised, nothing else matters. If Christ isn't raised, nothing matters. Isn't that good? If he's raised, nothing else matters. If he isn't raised, then nothing matters. Um, But Jesus here makes four claims to show us that he is trustworthy. First of all, in verse 1, Jesus claims that he deserves equal faith with God. Verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, there are several legitimate ways to translate that verse in, uh, because the Greek, the indicative and the imperative of the word believe are identical. You have to go by context to know is it saying you do believe or believe. And so there are a ver- variation. If you have a King James or a New King James or a New Living and maybe some other translations, they pick... Uh, You believe in God, indicative, then believe also in me, imperative. And that's a legitimate way to translate it. Most modern versions, the ESV, the NIV, the uh, New American Standard, uh, translate it as both imperatives. Believe in God, believe also in me. Um, And since Jesus' opening words are imperative, do not let your heart be troubled, I think that's probably the nod that I would give, that he is giving three imperatives in a row. Don't let your heart be troubled. The way you do that is believe in God and also believe in me. But whichever way you take it, the point stands. Jesus is claiming that he deserves exactly the same trust as your trust in God, and that is an incredible claim. It's a claim to deity. I mean, what mere man could say, trust me just as much as you trust God? Huh? You know, hello? We're all fallible. We're all ultimately untrustworthy when it comes to comparing ourselves to God. Alexander McLaren uh, wrote, The peculiarity of his call to the world is, believe in me. And if he said that or anything like it, then one of two things follow. Either he was wrong, and then he was a crazy enthusiast, only to be acquitted of blasphemy because convicted of insanity, or else, or else he was God manifest in the flesh. Now, in verse 9, Jesus is going to go on and affirm, if you've seen me, you've seen God, the Father. And so you can't separate faith in God from faith in Jesus um, because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. As we saw in John chapter 1, he is the Word who was in the beginning with God. Through Jesus, he created all things. As we've seen here in the events leading up to his death, Jesus was in control of all the minor details that led up to his death at precisely the moment uh, of the Passover. And so the point is, you can trust him in whatever circumstances you are facing because he is the sovereign Lord. Nothing escapes his gaze and nothing is outside of his sovereign permission. The second claim that Jesus makes is that he claims to be the exclusive way to God. Now, I'll come back to verses 2 and 3 uh, in a minute where Jesus promises that he's going to um, prepare a place for us in heaven, that he'll come again. But you notice then in verses 4 through 6, he says, And you know the way where I am going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replied, said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am glad that sometimes the disciples asked dense and stupid questions because we get some great answers from Jesus that we otherwise would not have. We'll see another one down in verse 8 with Philip here in this text. But... um The word way is emphasized here. It's in verse 4, it's in verse 5, and it's again in verse 6. It refers to the way to heaven or the way to God the Father. And significantly, Jesus doesn't say, I know the way, follow me, I'll point you to the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I read a story about a missionary who hired a guide to take him across this vast desert that was filled with sand dunes. They get to the edge of the desert, and the missionary can't even see a path. I mean, it's just sand dunes. There's not a footprint. There's not a road. Nothing. And uh, so he asked his guide with a a tone of surprise, Where's the road? And with a, a look of reproof, the guide said, I am the road. I am the road. Well, Jesus is the way to heaven, and so we have to trust him as the only way to heaven. This is the sixth of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. I am the bread of life, uh, he said in chapter 6. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world Chapter 9, I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. Uh, Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll see in chapter 15, the seventh, I am the true vine. But here, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's another claim to deity. And Jesus is saying, we can have access to God only through him. Now, in the Old Testament, if a Jew wanted access to God, he couldn't go directly. There was one door into the tabernacle, and then you couldn't just go through that one door and go right into the holy of holies. If you did, you got struck down, dead. The high priest could go, but only once a year on behalf of the people, and That on the Day of Atonement, after going through all of the rituals and slaying the the Lamb of Atonement. Well, I believe that that's behind the picture here. Jesus is our High Priest, and He didn't slay a Lamb to go in before us to the presence of God. He gave Himself as our Lamb of Atonement. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And so Jesus is the way into that holy of holies, into God's presence. And we can only come through him. Jesus also claims in verse 6, I am the truth. He again didn't say, I can teach you the truth, although that was true, he could. But he said, I am the truth. And in this context, he means that he is totally dependable. But also, he means... He's the only true way of salvation. Um, Jesus is the manifestation of the eternal God who is the truth, God of truth. And so it means we can only know ultimate reality through knowing Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus also says, I am the life. And again, he doesn't say, I can tell you how you can have life but he makes this bold claim i am the life in john 5:26 we saw jesus said for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself and then just a few verses earlier because jesus has life in himself he said <clears throat> that he gives life to whom he wishes. As you know, because of sin, the entire human race is alienated from God and is spiritually dead. And so what we need is not just a boost, we need life, we need resurrection. And that's what the gospel is all about. We can have eternal life only by coming through Jesus Christ to God the Father and as Jesus will go on to say in John 17:3 eternal life consists of knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent Now <clears throat> there are three articles that are repeated here Jesus says I am the way not a way I am the truth not a truth I am the life not a life And that alone would point to the exclusivity of his claim. But then he cinches it at the end of the verse. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's exclusive. It means he is the only way to God. And Peter certainly picked up on that because uh, when he testified to the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts 4.12, He said, and there is salvation in no one else, Uh, he adds, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So, Jesus is the exclusive way. Now, I think you know that flies in the face of our postmodern era that we live in, uh, in two ways at least. Number one... This shows us that there is such a thing as absolute truth in the spiritual realm. Truth is not relative. And secondly, it shows that Jesus is the only absolute truth in the spiritual realm. There are not many truths. Take your pick. There is one truth, and that's Jesus. And, you know, people in the world today don't have a problem if you say, well, Jesus is a way to God. They'll say, that's fine. Glad you got your way. Or if you say, well, Jesus is my savior, they'll say, well, good. I'm glad that that works for you. I have my own way. But when you say, no, no, your way is wrong, there is only one way, and that way is Jesus, whoo, boy, at that point, you get accused of, you know, being intolerant and uh, arrogant when you say, Jesus is the only way you can know God and have your sins forgiven and have eternal life, man, you're narrow-minded. You know, you're bigoted. But R.C. Sproul points out the notion that all religions are valid is illogical. <clears throat> it's logically impossible. Because if all religions are valid, that means Christianity is valid, and Jesus said he is the only way. <laughs> and so... You know, you can't have it both ways. Either he was right or he was wrong. And then Sproul concludes this. He says, if he was wrong, then Christianity has no validity at all. And if he's right, then there's no other way. So we have to confront that eclectic, you know, the, the coexist bumper sticker you see all over Flagstaff. If they mean, let's get along with one another. Great. Fine. I agree with that. But if they mean it doesn't matter, you know, pick your way, I'm sorry, they are wrong. Now, let me share with you how verse 6 can give you comfort if you're troubled. First of all, believing that Jesus is the way will comfort your troubled heart, because what that means is you have access to the very throne of God. The Jews could not go in there. They'd get incinerated. But through Jesus, the veil is torn, the way is open, he is our high priest, and he invites us to come to God and make our requests known to him. And so the very God who spoke the universe into existence, you have access to him with whatever your problem is. A second way it can comfort you is believing that Jesus is the truth is a comfort because All other ways are subjective. You know, people out there are shifting with, well, this works, and yeah, I tried this, and this works, and they're in confusion. But you can stand firm on believing the truth as revealed in the Word of God, and you can go to that word for help in whatever difficulty you're in. It speaks to our condition. And believing then that Jesus is the life will comfort your troubled heart, because, again, trusting in him gives you assurance of eternal life. That that you know when you die, if you die in any crisis, whatever, you will be forever with the Lord. And you will have uh, eternal happiness and joy in him. And you will escape God's judgment. So, uh, Jesus then is trustworthy because he deserves equal faith with God. He is trustworthy also because he is the exclusive way to God. A third claim that Jesus makes in verses 7 through 9 is that he claims to be the unique revealer of God. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, there's a variant reading in the Greek text of verse 7, and it's well supported by some early manuscripts, and it reads, "If If you have come to know me, and it's what is called a first-class condition in Greek. It means, and you have, or we could translate it, since you have come to know me, you shall know my Father also. And uh, if that reading is correct, then the idea of the original is Jesus is emphasizing what we saw back in John 1.18, where John says there, No one has seen God at any time, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. And so Jesus is claiming here that to know Jesus is to know the Father. He is the one who reveals the Father to us. Now, when he says, from now on, uh, you know him and have seen him, I think he's pointing ahead to uh, what is going to transpire shortly. Jesus will die, he will be raised, he will be ascended, and then the Holy Spirit will be given. And as we'll see next, or in a couple of weeks, there in verse 16 and 17, the Spirit is going to reveal all things to the disciples. But Jesus, um, his comment that the disciples have seen the Father in verse 7, prompts Philip to ask, one of these clumsy and inappropriate questions. Philip says, "Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us." And what he's maybe thinking is, Jesus is leaving us, maybe if we have an epiphany like Moses had up on Mount Sinai, where, you know, he beheld God, maybe then we can make it without Jesus being with us. Um, Jesus Reply is a rebuke, and I think it reflects some grief uh, when he says in verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So again, I'm glad that Philip asked this inappropriate question. Uh, But Leon Morris says about Jesus' reply, these are words that no mere man has a right to use. To say, if you've seen me, you've seen the invisible God. How could any mere man say that? But Jesus says it. In Colossians 2.9, Paul said, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, here's how that can comfort you in your troubles. I think sometimes when we are troubled, it's hard to lay hold of the invisible God. You know, God is spirit. No man has seen God at any time. Wow, how do you lay hold of that? Well, you lay hold of Jesus. He came. He revealed God to us. We have the record of the trials he went through, the troubles he endured Uh, the teaching he gave us, all of that is in our Bible. So if you have trouble laying hold of, well, God is kind of nebulous in my thinking, lay hold of Jesus, because to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. And Jesus, as our tender high priest, reveals to us all of God's mercy. And uh, he is our access to the Father. So Jesus, then, is trustworthy because he claims equal trust with God. He's trustworthy because he says he's the exclusive way to God. He's trustworthy in the third place because he is the unique revealer of God. And then finally, Jesus claims to be in intimate union with the Father in verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe? Notice the emphasis on believe in these verses. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father, abiding in me, does his works. Here it is again. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, here it is again, believe because of the works themselves. Now, that brings us back full circle to verse 1, doesn't it? You believe in God or believe in God, believe also in me. To believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father because he's saying the two are in this inseparable union. The Bible is clear that there is one God who subsists in three co-equal eternal persons, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have the Trinity in our text and in the context. Jesus and the Father are in verse 10. When we get down to verses 16 and 17, uh, we will see the Holy Spirit as well. And so Jesus reveals the Father to us, and the Spirit reveals Christ to us. That's their role. But the point is to know Jesus is to know God. Now, Jesus gives two reasons that we should believe that he is in intimate union with the Father, his words and his works. Um, Jesus says he didn't make up what he taught. He was merely repeating the words of the Father. And in saying that, he's just repeating what we already heard back him say back in chapter 8. In verse 26, he's contending here with his critics, his enemies, and he says this, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And then two verses later, he repeats it. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, literally, And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And so Jesus' words confirm he is in intimate union with the Father. Everything he says is from the Father. He doesn't make up a single thing on his own. Then also, not Jesus' words, but also his works. His works prove that he's in intimate union with the Father, he says here. And his works refer to everything he did, but I think there's a special emphasis on his miracles. Now, skeptics, of course, challenge the miracles of Jesus. Well, that was an era where everybody could believe in miracles, but we're more scientific and so on. And uh, they will say, well, I've never seen a miracle. Well, how do, how do we know the miracles Jesus did actually happened? They were confirmed by numerous credible eyewitness testimony. And furthermore, those eyewitnesses were so convinced of the truth of the miracles, especially the resurrection, that most of them went on and laid down their lives for that truth rather than deny it. So there's good reason. When a skeptic or a a critic, well, show me a miracle and I'll believe, the answer is no, you wouldn't. Because you're not willing to repent. And at the heart of unbelief is, I love my sin, and I don't want to yield to Jesus as Lord. So that's the key issue. It's not, are the miracles credible or not? Now, again, as I emphasized when I read the text, Jesus challenges us believe me in verse 11, and notice he says something else. Believe me that, that. In other words, faith has content. It's not a vague, I believe for every star that falls, a flower grows, or however that song goes. That's all mush, you know? It's not based on truth. There is specific content to our faith, content that Jesus revealed to us, And specifically, we are to believe what Jesus claims here in this text, that he deserves equal faith with God. Uh, We are to believe that Jesus is the exclusive way to God. We are to believe that he is the unique revealer of God. We are to believe that he is in intimate, indissoluble union with the Father, with God. And then Jesus says, If you can't believe my words alone, at least believe because of my works. Read the Gospels and see who Jesus is, what he did, what he taught, the miracles that he performed, the evidence of his resurrection. Believe the works, and that will give comfort to your troubled heart. Now, there's one other thing, and uh, I hate to rush this. thought about giving a whole message to it, but it's hope. Hope in Christ's promise will comfort your troubled heart. So, belief in Christ's person, hope in Christ's promise. Verses 2 and 3 is our focus here. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. You say, what's the difference between biblical hope and faith? Not much. They're, they're really close. Somebody described hope as faith standing on tiptoe. I like that picture. You're kind of looking out at the future, and you haven't realized it yet, but it's as good as done because God promised it. And it it is based on the truth that God has promised And God is true. He is not a promise breaker. So biblical hope is not like if you say, I sure hope the Cardinals win today. You know, this is a crucial game. Man, they've got to win. I hope they win. Well, you have no idea whether they will or not. Biblical hope is tonight after the game is over, let's say they won, I watch the replay. Say, I know the outcome. Yep, they won. I just don't know how it plays out yet. And then I watch the replay and go, ah, that's how they won. Well, biblical hope is like that. We know the outcome. We just don't know all the plays that are going to take place to get us there. But we know that God is sure and that his word is true. Now, Jesus makes two promises that are certain because he is the truth. First of all, Christ is making a reservation for us in heaven. And the picture here, <clears throat> some of you may have the old King James that said there are many mansions. It's not quite accurate. You know, there's, you ever drive through Beverly Hills and there's a mansion here and a mansion over there. And they're all guarded. That's not the picture. The picture here was in the Oriental uh, system. A father would have a house, and when his children grew up and got married, he would add on rooms. And there would be a big compound where there was a courtyard in the middle, but the whole extended family would dwell together, and that's the picture here. And there are several comforting truths in that picture. First of all, it means that heaven is a real place. It's not just a figment of your imagination, and it's not... You know, we're all going to be sitting on clouds, strumming harps in our white robes with wings and all of that. No, it's a it's a real place. A second comforting truth is this. Heaven is like going home. You know, when you travel in, in a foreign country, it's always a little nerve-wracking because you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you don't know the geography, you don't know the people, you can't read the signs, And so it's always a little bit nerve-wracking. Well, heaven isn't like that. Heaven's like going home. It's like going home. And there's a father to welcome you, a loving father. And there are brothers and sisters, all sanctified, by the way. And uh, (laughs) there are brothers and sisters to welcome you there, Uh, you know, those who have gone before us. And so heaven is like going home. And then, thirdly, Jesus is right there preparing a place for us now. Now, don't get the picture. He's up there with his carpenter's tools, you know, hammering and sawing and building rooms. I think this points to the fact that he is interceding on our behalf. He has saved us. We saw in John 6, I'm not going to lose a single one the Father gave me. And so he's preparing that place in that sense of he's our advocate, When we fail, he is pleading his blood before the Father to restore us and keep us. That's how he's preparing the place for us and preparing us for the place. But, you know, whenever you travel, it's always comforting to know I've got a confirmed reservation. You know, I got the reservation confirmation number right here. I can walk in and say, you've got a room for me. You know you're not going to be out in the cold that night, even if you come in late. And that's how this promise of heaven is. You have a reserved space for you in heaven with the Father. The second promise Christ makes is not only is he making a reservation for us in heaven, but he's going to make a return for us on earth. He says he will come again and receive us unto himself that where he is there we will be also. And so whether we are alive when Christ comes, that would be our hope. Or whether we die and go to heaven, the point is, we'll be reunited with our loved ones, yes. But the better point is, we will be with Jesus. We will be with him. That where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Martin Luther is reputed to have said, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. Of course, that's a contradictory statement because hell wouldn't be hell if Christ was there, and heaven wouldn't be heaven if Christ was there. I think that's what Luther meant. But the certainty that Christ is coming back bodily means terror for those who are not right with God through faith in him. The book of Revelation, chapter 19 and and verse 15, says that he's going to come to tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That'll be a terrifying day for those who are not covered by the blood of Christ. But his return is going to mean comfort for you and me if we have believed in Christ as our Savior and Lord. The Apostle Paul, you remember, wrote to the troubled Thessalonian people about the second coming of Christ. They they were worried about, well, what about our loved ones who died? And where are they? And he, he gives that great uh, truth there in First Thessalonians 4. And then here's his concluding bottom line, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. With the words that Christ is coming for you and for me. And that all our loved ones will come with him. They will, we will all receive new resurrection bodies at the instant he comes. And we will be with the Lord. Now, as I conclude, let me just point out, back in verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Here's the implication of that. You can do something about your troubled heart. You aren't a victim of your emotions. You aren't a victim of circumstances because it's a command. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. And then he tells you how, which I've been explaining. But that's good news. Because so many people, they're just swayed around and tossed around by all manner of emotions. And, oh, all this happened to me. Don't let your heart be troubled. That's the command. And so we can do something to deal with our anxiety or with our troubled heart. Namely, believe in Jesus as God, believe in his person, and hope in his promise. Believe in his person and hope in his promise. I love the Psalms, as I said, <clears throat> and I love Psalm 42 and 43. <clears throat> their companion Psalms. And the psalmist is troubled and he's in despair. And you know what he does? He talks to himself. He talks to himself, why are you in despair O my soul? Why are you troubled within me? And then he gives this great answer, verse 5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And the wonderful thing about John here is, we saw in chapter 13, Jesus became troubled as he contemplated the cross. And because Jesus was troubled for you and me, We don't need to be troubled by our circumstances. And so the next time you're troubled and anxious, before you run to the medicine cabinet and do what the world does and pop a pill, I'm just pleading with you, stop and consider, have I laid hold of the person of Jesus? And am I relying on the promise of Jesus? And I believe that faith in Jesus' person And hope in his promise will give you comfort when your soul is troubled. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus who came to this troubled world and bore all of our sins and griefs in his body on the cross so that we don't have to face your wrath, your judgment, that we have the eternal hope of heaven. And Lord the testimony of Christ is at stake when we as believers are troubled and the world may taunt us. We want to give witness to the world that believing in Christ is not in vain. That trusting in your promise gives genuine hope to those who are overwhelmed in circumstances and that even... Though you slay us, Lord, our trust should be in you. That even if the ship goes down, we'll go down singing the doxology. But that you would be glorified through our faith in Christ and his person. Through our hope in the promise that Christ gives that we will be with you very shortly. So I pray, Lord, if some of my brothers and sisters are troubled this morning. The spirit of comfort would comfort them. And I pray, Lord, if any are here and they're under the trouble of their sin and guilt, that you would show them that there is mercy at the cross for every sinner who trusts in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.